Hello, you're listening to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. This is the eighth episode in our series of brief conversations with academics who come to present at our weekly seminar. This is also the last seminar of the Michaelmas term, so this will be our last podcast for nearly two months. Hope you've enjoyed our content so far, and I hope you'll agree that this is a fantastic paper to end the term on. I'm Lewis DeFreitz, I'm a PhD student at Sydney Sussex College here in Cambridge, and I'm delighted today to be speaking to Jane Dinwoody, who is a junior research fellow at Jesus College here in Cambridge. Jane is a historian of Indigenous America and the United States. Jane completed her DPhil at Oxford in 2017, and her dissertation was titled Beyond Removal, Indians, States and Sovereignties in the American South, 1812-1860. Jane was also an Advisory Council Dissertation Fellow at the McNeil Centre for Early American Studies at the University of Pennsylvania between 2016 and 17. As well as studying Native American removal, Jane is interested in Indigenous experiences of the Civil War and Greater Reconstruction, the US's continental Indian policies and the global dimensions of Indigenous histories. She's doing some fantastic and fascinating work, and I'm very pleased to be able to speak to her today. Thank you, I'm glad to be here. Great, so we're going to talk about your paper, a bit about your ongoing work and research, and some of your wider experiences as a historian and as a person. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) So, somewhat building on the topic from the podcast last week, your paper today is titled Evading Indian Removal in the American South, 1812 to 1850. It's been pre-circulated, so I've been able to read it already, but could you tell listeners of the podcast more about it? Sure. Um, So basically, um, this paper tells the story of the thousands of Indigenous Southerners who successfully avoided federal attempts to deport them west to Indian Territory in the mid-19th century, um, a process we normally call Indian removal. Um, Specifically, this paper looks at people who avoided removal using a strategy that I call evasion. that is, strategically relocating to difficult and inaccessible places throughout the South, um, places like swamps, caves, mountains, forests, briar patches, all sorts of hard-to-reach places. Um, By relocating to these places, I argue Indigenous Southerners um, successfully escaped Asian sight and reach, and they created alternative geographies of power, um, like marines and fugitive peoples throughout the colonial world. Um, I argue that they challenged American claims to control the region for decades to come, and the story matters because um, it challenges myths of a complete removal in the South and has implications for the ways that we think about state power and American empire in the 19th century. Great. So maybe could you talk a little bit more about the, I suppose you don't need to name names, but this, this literature on like Indian removal in the South, what's been the traditional presumptions that people have made about this and how is your work kind of interjecting in this? Um, sure. So, I mean, I guess traditionally um, histories of Indian removal have really focused on well, okay, so they focused on um, the five tribes, but particularly on the experience of the Cherokees. And there's a huge mythology surrounding um, the Trail of Tears and this idea of kind of um, Cherokee um, Cherokee responses to the Removal Act. You know, there were, um, John Ross mounted um, court cases. The idea that that failed, and then there was this tragic military removal that saw most of the Cherokee nation removed west. Um, the way that that sort of translated, I guess, into bigger histories of the South traditionally is um, historians, especially in kind of like survey courses or the big arcs of history that we tend to teach, um, see removal as this kind of turning point in Southern history, the moment when um, the South goes from being kind of an indigenous world to the Cotton Kingdom, right? And that's something that you see a lot, as I say, particularly within um, Southern history traditionally defined. Um, for instance, I think Walter, um, Walter Johnson and Ed Baptist have these, both have these great lines where they kind of set up their surveys of the Cotton Kingdom and effectively write out all the indigenous people kind of in the yeah. introduction. Um, I would say um, historians 
specifically of Southern Indigenous nations have um, countered this to some extent. There are some great tribal histories um, that look at particular groups that have avoided removal, particularly um, the Seminoles in Florida or the Eastern Turkeys um, in North Carolina. But um, yeah, I don't think there's been a kind of big effort to write, well, what I hope I'm writing, <laughs> like a kind of cross-regional history of non-removal um, that brings in everybody and kind of looks at non-removal as a phenomenon in and of itself. Mm. And you talk about, so evasion in this instance, you're talking about like people escaping to different and forming communities. Right. Could you talk about some of those communities and like their relationship to local landscapes? Um, sure. So yeah. um, in the paper, I kind of cover what I hope is like a broad range of ground, um, looking at kind of various different stories of individual people. I mean, um, for instance, one of my favourite stories or communities that I look at um, is a group of Choctaws who, um, I guess I call the Biolacom Choctaws, who um, basically splinter from the wider Choctaw nation sometime in the 1830s. They kind of hear rumours of removal. And what they do is they go to Louisiana and they go to these kind of um, kind of swampy, brackish lands, and they settle particularly um, along the bio, the, this place with this bio called the Biolacom, right, which is just um, off Lake Pontchartrain, Train, which is just a short way away from New Orleans. Um, yeah, and basically they kind of use that swampy landscape um, as a place to sort of recreate a smaller community in and of themselves. Um, and they choose it, I think, because it's a place where um, either they know or they hope that agents are unlikely to come. It's a place that's very has very low levels of um, white or um, Euro-American settlement. Um, it's like renowned as being a place that even like the you know the most desperate immigrants don't go because it's so hard to get there and you'll get lost or yeah. you'll drown in the bio. Um, so they kind of, yeah, um, create this community there basically. And that's one of the examples I write about. I also have examples um, of communities who do all sorts of <laughs> all sorts of different things. And they really range in size from being just a handful of people, kind of two or three people that might go um, into the woods, for instance, I have um, a group of really elderly Creeks who kind of relocate to the um, deep woods somewhere in Alabama. Yeah. Um, and then to kind of bigger groups whose stories we sort of know more, I guess, um, like some of the um, people that eventually coalesced to become the Eastern Cherokees in North Carolina who use the Appalachians or caves in the Appalachians hmm. um, to evade agents there. So, yeah, I hope that gives you a sense. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot, lot of different things going mm -hmm. on and it's obviously quite dependent on the local landscapes yeah, as well, sure. right? So could you talk maybe a little bit more about um, what you mean by evasion in particular? Like, I guess, because one of the like, the real strengths of the paper is you're looking at this kind of like long-term community formation. And there's some discussion of like the moment of escape itself mm -hmm. in some instances, but then it seems to be a lot more focused on that longer-term settlement. Could you maybe talk a little bit more about that? Um, sure. So, I mean... Yeah, so I'm kind of, as you say, I'm kind of trying to do both things, I guess, mm -hmm. in capturing this idea of evasion. Um, that there's basically evasion takes a range of different forms. For some people, it is temporary. It's kind of just, yeah. um, especially like people who are facing um, forced deportations, for instance, like the kind of Cherokee Trail of Tears style, where agents yeah. are coming, or soldiers are coming rather, to round people up at gunpoint in like mm -hmm. 18, uh, 1838. Um, people are really making a kind of split second decision, okay, well, I could just run or I could take my baby and run and see what happens. Um, but then I do argue, yeah, that basically, although a lot of evasive acts do kind of begin with a sense of urgency, they're actually not random. They're kind of long considered decisions that really draw on indigenous people's um, knowledge of their local regions and their local yeah. communities. Um, and I think I kind of write about it 
um, <laughs> and like hopefully the phrase that works, but um, as kind of weaponizing their knowledge of the region, right? Yeah. And they kind of draw on that. Um, and I think, yeah, some of these communities do really last for quite a long time. Like um, the community I was just talking about, the Biolicom Choctaws, um, they managed to kind of stay in that area, um, at least through the Civil War. Um, they actually have quite a bad experience in the Civil War because um, there's a lot of kind of fighting in that area, especially on um, Lake Pontchartrain. So they kind of get stuck in the middle of that. Um, but they do stay and then, you know, they stay as a community in that region. And there are people that stay at least until the turn of the 20th century. Um, and then you get a slightly different, interesting phenomenon of kind of newspapers writing them out. It's like the last of the top tours mm-hmm. in that region. Um, but obviously they don't disappear. They just, they go and do something else by that point. Um, but yeah, so I think that's one of the things I kind of wanted to make the case, I guess, that like in compare, like when I compare them to the marine communities, I kind of want to say that they have this longevity I guess and what they do really create is this alternative geography and sometimes it's momentary sometimes mm-hmm. you know it's a protective space that lasts you a day or two days and then you move on somewhere else but sometimes it is this thing that does become something that lasts generations and does kind of provide a kind of alternate indigenous south that persists in the gaps and cracks of the cotton kingdom the places right. that we would usually think of as being outside of the southern history we're interested in yeah and I guess like one of your main moves in the paper is talking about all these different communities collectively because mm-hmm. it seems like quite a few of these, even though you talk about how like federal forces or like state forces wouldn't have been aware, sometimes they were aware of these groups, sometimes mm-hmm. they weren't. But one of your yeah, one of your big moves is talking about them all together. So on that note, like towards the end of the paper, you shift towards a little bit more of like state responses to mm-hmm. evasion. Could you maybe um, talk about more like how our awareness of state reactions, like what can that offer to what is essentially an indigenous story about avoiding and evading that state? Um, yeah, so definitely. So that's something that um, I hope does come across in this paper, but certainly in my kind of wider work, I'm really interested in. I'm interested in as much in writing a history of non-removal. I'm as interested in interested as much in what indigenous southerners did, but also in the ways that kind of state and mainly specifically federal officials enforcing removal. Um, understood or more often misunderstood or totally missed <laughs> about what they were doing. Um, so the kind of the second section that you refer to, yeah, kind of is a taster of that, I guess, to kind of say, with specific reference to evasion, stories of evasion by and large do not exist in the traditional documentary record, that is to say federal government documents, right? Yeah. So if you go and read the papers of the Office of Indian Affairs, you won't find most of these people. Um, <laughs> and this was something I sort of learned the hard way that, you know, in my like first year of graduate school, I went flew out to DC, went to the National Archives, sat down, like got into the papers of the Office of Indian Affairs and was like, great, I'm going to find all of these people. I'm going to see what they had to say about them. And basically spent a very frustrating, dark summer, a lot of which in the, was in the microfilm room, like in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> but finding that these people were not in the in those records mm. and kind of being like oh god why like should I be rethinking my project and then kind of thought oh okay actually it matters that they're not there right and I yeah. can reread these silences as not just absences but as actually okay so things happen that I know happened from different documentary sources mm-hmm. but that the federal government in this instance was clearly not able to see or didn't come back through kind of agents letters especially to the kind of top levels uh, in DC um, so that's the kind of thing I wanted to convey I guess and to really stress that Evaded, that was a kind of deliberate aim, I think, of these evasive groups that they wanted to eschew agents' sight and their reach yeah. and to place themselves where they couldn't be seen or accessed. Um, and I think looking at that kind of state perspective and really showing that no like federal federal officials and ground level agents are not 
getting this. They're not really not seeing yeah. them. Um, yeah, I hope that is an important thing to do and enhances the kind of wider... I think that's where it comes through the most, right? Yeah. Like the actual strategies of evasion, yeah. yeah. So I guess on that note, you're talking about your dark summer in the archives and your broader <laughs> work. How, do, how does this paper fit into your current work and your wider research? Um, so, but, so this paper kind of, I guess, draws from um, my ongoing wider research, which, as I say, began life in, as that PhD dissertation kind mm-hmm. of researched in those summers <laughs> in the microfilm room and in other areas of like um, the National Archives in DC and in other places. Um, and that has now become my first book project, which is, as I kind of have discussed, I guess, in talking about this, is basically I'm writing a broader history of non-removal as a phenomenon in and of itself. Yeah. Um, and I, as I say, I'm interested in the ways that um, basically non-removal changes the way we think about the 19th century. I'm interested in the way that non-removal doesn't just affect indigenous people. I am interested in that, but I'm also mm-hmm. interested in the way that it affects um, American policymakers, local residents, state officials, um, and broader like North American dynamics of empire, um, sovereignty, state development, imperialism. So kind of bigger, bigger things that we yeah. have to say about the 19th century. Sure. Can, could you maybe talk a little bit more about if this is, so would this be a chapter in that book? Um, yeah, so yeah. I think, yeah, basically. Yeah. So um, I have, so my dissertation was organized thematically mm-hmm. um i think some of that will at last into the book but i'm at the stage where i'm really just figuring this out because i only finished my phd just over a year ago um but yeah i think some of the kind of thematic focus um looking at different strategies that groups mm. avoid um groups used to avoid removal will persist and evasion hopefully yeah will be one of those chapters fantastic sounds like a pretty <laughs> The, the impression I get from people talking about it is it's a pretty daunting task turning that PhD into a book project, sure. right? So I don't, don't <laughs> I ask think, too many yeah. questions about that. I think yeah. I'm getting there, but um, yeah, well, yeah, there's still some decisions to be made. Sure. So, like, moving on to some more general questions, mm-hmm. just to close out, are there any books or articles you've read recently that have got you excited, either about the state of the field or your own research? Um, so, I feel like, yeah, I feel like I've read a lot of great books, actually, like, in the past year or so, but... Um, one book that's really stayed with me, and I guess that I would recommend to anyone listening to this podcast, mm-hmm. um, is Melinda Maina Lowry's um, The Lumbianians, An American Struggle. Um, basically, she tells the story of um, the Lumbies, who are a group of currently federally unrecognised um, Native Americans that live in North Carolina, um, who actually, um, yeah, who basically, um, despite being one of the largest communities of Native Americans in the US, still lack that federal recognition. Um, and she kind of basically tells their story from um, European colonisation te- colonization attempts and the failed English attempt to colonise at Roanoke through to the present day. And she kind of interto- intertwines her own family history because she herself is Lumbi um, with yeah lots of big moments in US history, as I say, from colonisation through um, removal and the way that they persist through removal, although they weren't actually targeted for removal, so they're not in this paper, not formally targeted for removal. Um, and then through like through the 20th century has a great chapter on like the war on drugs and the ways right. that kind of figures in Lumbee history. And basically anybody interested in any element of US history could read this book and find something great in it. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay, so moving on, what's the most interesting place you've been for research? And I'm assuming it's not the microfilm <laughs> in DC. <laughs> I would say so I ended up actually I spent many months in DC like doing work at the National Archives and I did have great times okay. there. But um I don't know I'm lucky because this project, because I guess it's quite a big project, it's taken me to a lot of different places mm-hmm. um, across the US, which has been great. But I guess um, probably the most interesting the place that I enjoyed maybe the most, or one of the places I've enjoyed the most, um, was going to New Orleans. Um, and yeah. I was able to do some research at Tulane in their archives, which were great. Um, and I found loads of really great stuff. 
um, actually stuff that's in this paper. Um, but also just New Orleans is just such a great place to be and it's a place that figures in my work. So it's nice to kind of explore it from that angle and kind yeah. of walk, you know, walk around some of the places, see like the swamps and bios mm-hmm. that surround the city. Um, but also, yeah, it's just a fun place to be and I ate a lot of great food there. And yeah, so I'd, yeah, that was probably one of the best ones. Yeah. And I think it is an important thing for like British people studying America, Tina Spence and Tom, mm-hmm. yeah, right? Like, yeah, no, yeah. for sure. And like, yeah, as I say, like whenever I've been to places that actually figure in my dissertation or kind of like see, especially for this kind of paper, actually, that's so based in a region and in mm-hmm. like landscapes, it was so important to go, right? Yeah. <laughs> and to get a sense of those places rather yeah. than to just write about them from books like from the other side of the ocean exactly yeah and to close out as always uh, Jane what's your favourite album <laughs> um, everyone's favourite question yeah <laughs> um, so I don't know if I have a favourite album but okay. I mean I want to like so when I write and when I edit mm-hmm. I like to listen to things that are basically quite upbeat so I listen to a lot of like funk okay. um, so I yeah I really like a band called Funkadelic mm-hmm. probably their like first album Funkadelic is great um if I'm feeling calmer maybe like Nina Simone or like something yeah. like that to edit to or like Joni Mitchell um, so I'll go with that <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, that's a very good answer, very respectable answer. Right. So, Jane Dinwiddie, thanks very much for talking to me today. Um, Really looking forward to the seminar later on and, you know, for that book when it comes out eventually. (laughs) Me too. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. To listeners of the podcast, I guess we'll see you next term. Thanks very much.